get sneaky. Laurie Rose, the two-time winner, takes the lead from Faulkner. That's the way they finish the first lap. Welcome to another episode of Pit Lane Parlay. I am your host, Mike Jerkum. Matt is here. Our friend David Lighting joins us once again. Gentlemen, how are we doing on this lovely Tuesday evening? I'm doing great. I uh, still have power despite around a severe thunderstorms. I was the first one logged in this evening, so uh, things are looking up in my world. I was the second one logged in. Yeah, listen... Sometimes weird things happen, and, and I'm late. It's very rare that I'm the last one. And it's very rare that I'm the first one. <laughs> yes, that's true. And We're I will, always waiting for you. I congratulate uh, Lighting on responding within 20 minutes that he was interested in coming on the show when I texted him. Wow. If I had tweeted him, it would have been two minutes. But uh, You know, that's quicker than text messages I sent him this weekend when we were in the same city. Should we start there? Before, before no, 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 no. We, well, well, maybe. We have to start with that. Okay, because, like you know, usually really I do like, hey, w- w- who is your favorite Mario Kart character or something, which maybe we could do next week, or do you like gravy or not, or stuff like that. Why don't we start with um, David here. How in the wide world of... Did you not end up in the same spot as Mike when you guys were in the same city, texted you the same location to the same place, and you ended up on the wrong side of town? Can we start there? Can I can I seg can I lead into David's explanation? Were you gonna put him on blast first or what? No, no, no. I'm gonna I'm just gonna set him up. I'm gonna set him up. So the scene is Saturday afternoon. I get a text message from Joey Melinaro on where the hangout is Saturday night. He specifically says the tin roof off of, I forget the name of the street, starts with a D. So I say, okay. I text David. I say, I know you're a big barstool guy. You know, come hang out. So he says, okay, cool. Which, what place? I say the tin roof. And then because there's two of them, I copy and paste the address off of Google into the text message. So that like that way, like when we all meet up like eight hours later, because it was like two o'clock in the afternoon and the event wasn't until after qualifying and i don't think i got even got there until eight o'clock or so so i will i will leave it there and turn it over to oh go ahead matt well i have just one thing for people to keep in mind as david's talking is that david is a pilot and so the next time that he picks me up and says we're going to this place we may be shooting for milwaukee and we might end up in bismarck (laughs) so david what happened Okay, well, let me just start off by saying this is pretty embarrassing because I consider myself a pretty, like, directionally and, like, navigationally sound human being. Like, oftentimes I don't rely on maps. I'm like that, you know, old curmudgeon-y guy that's like, nope, we're not using the GPS, we're driving there, and I'm just going to figure it out. Um, I'll also say that alcohol probably played no part in the fact that I went to the wrong establishment in downtown Nashville. I, is that I, a wink or a nudge there? or is that We're just going to rule that one out. Um, oh, okay. But in all fairness, when Mike reminded me they were at the Tin Roof, I happened to be on the rooftop of Nudie's Bar, which is on Broadway, for those of you that aren't familiar with Nudie's. Good, good place. 
Yeah, and I could see the tin roof on Broadway from the rooftop of Nudie's. So in my mind, I was like, oh, sweet, tin roof's right there. So I looked at Michelle and our friend Sarah, who was with us. I said, all right, let's head to tin roof so we can meet up with Mike. He's with a few other people. Mike says, I don't even remember what your text said, Mike. I'm in the back on the right, past the stage or something like that. We walk into this place, and the stage is right in the front. So I'm like, oh, there must be another stage here. I end up going all the way to the back. I go to the second floor. I go to the third floor. I walk this entire bar like, where the hell is Mike? Michelle is walking this entire bar. She goes, maybe it's one of those bars where there's like two spots and there's two entrances. Should we go outside and try a different entrance? At that point, I communicated with Mike, and he kindly reminded me that, no, I was probably a solid mile from them. The worst part of this entire story is the tin roof that Mike was actually at was within walking distance of my Airbnb. So there's that as well. There's no way. I mean, I, I, I'm surprised that Host has made it like 74 years of life so far. How have you made it 26 years? Yeah, you know, the best part was we had multiple people in the tin roof I was in. It was me, another guy, and Kevin Dujewski all walking around the other side. So the other side of the act- the tin roof we were at had like a club and like a DJ. So we're like walking through there looking for you guys. I'm like, this is who we're looking for. You know, we're taking I'm taking pictures of like where I'm standing to like help lighting. And then he's like, yeah, I'm at the wrong place. So at that point, we were all we're all tired. And I was like, OK, I'm going to bed. And then and we I, left. I swear to God, when we walked into the tin roof on Broadway, there was a high noon banner, like a massive high noon banner. And I could have sworn yeah. there was a barstool logo on it. And I was like, we got to be in the right place. <laughs> if this is Joey's party, we're absolutely in the right place. How many um, drinks did you have? Probably a lot. Saturday, quite a few. Even though you and also by saying I didn't. A few other anything. nights. Oh well, we have lighting on here. Mike and Shannon McBridge were both uh, credentialed this weekend, and they did a phenomenal job covering everything. Lighting was in the stands with his lovely wife and friend. I don't. Was it anybody else other than you and Sarah and Michelle? No, I randomly ran into Stig at breakfast. I had to do like a triple take, and then he looked over at me, and he was like, David? I was like, Stig? And we started yelling at each other with another table between us, and I don't think they really appreciated that. He did that to Um, me at Road America 2019. He was like walking, and he's just like, Hickey? I'm like, Stig! (laughs) So, yeah, I guess that's just a common theme for people to run into Stig at the track. We will be saving Nashville for a little later on the episode, both our race recap and then kind of an overview of kind of the logistics of the race and what maybe could be improved for next year. We do want to start, unfortunately, by passing on our condolences to the family of Bob Jenkins, the legendary announcer of motorsports uh, and, you know, kind of in our community, the emphasis on the Indy 500 and IndyCar he sadly passed away a couple of days ago uh, from cancer. Uh, it's, you know, a very sad time because, you know, once he passed away, all the memories of some of his amazing calls, his amazing work within the community, just his friendly spirit were being shared around social media. So just thinking of his friends and family, it's such an iconic voice that we lost. But kind of on top of that, just an all around terrific human that, that the world has lost. Yeah, that. IMS video that they put out the five minute video which if you haven't watched 
please pause this episode and go watch it right away because it is fantastic. And I watched it in the airport and had to uh, hide a few tears because it's it's really well done. Yeah, I'd agree with that, Mike. I thought one of the things that I really enjoyed about the IMS video was they didn't just highlight the work he did with IndyCar and the Indy 500. Um, you know, it kind of reminded you, and at least it reminded me just how important Bob Jenkins was to getting motorsports really off the ground at ESPN, which, um, you know, was a pretty pretty monumental uh, feat for motorsports at that time. Yeah, so obviously very sad news, so... We'll try to share our tributes and whatnot and keep them in our in our thoughts because, yeah, he was a terrific human. To segue out of that, we will talk about some of the news that's come up within the last week that isn't really Super Nashville-related, and then we'll preview the – what is this one called? It's not the GMR Grand Prix. Is it the Spiked Coolers, Big Machine, <laughs> Kerr Baggajanian? I don't know. Isn't that what it's called? It's the doubleheader weekend with NASCAR, right? Yes, uh, it IndyCar, Xfinity, and NASCAR all in all in one weekend. Sweet. So we got that on Saturday, I believe, noon central, one central. Uh, so we'll talk about that too. So first of all, we can start with the super big teased announcement that McLaren had that they scheduled and let everybody Ugh. know in advance, and all it was was them just increasing their stake in the team. So I think the only comment I have is, well, A, that's obviously positive. I mean, cool. McLaren's in this for the long haul. At the same time, though, I was really hoping there'd be like a third driver announcement for next year, and I was kind of disappointed when the hype that was generated. It's not really like a super huge announcement, if you ask me. It's more of like a corporate announcement. Yeah, from my point of view, so we got the email Saturday after qualifying. Sunday, 10.15 a.m., major announcements. So you know, Sunday there was warm-ups at noon. Otherwise, there was nothing until the race. So... You made sure to, to get up early and head down to the track only for that and then to sit around for many hours was kind of a bummer. And it was also a bummer because they were like, yeah, we might have a third car next year, but only if it has funding. Like, that just, like, further, like, you know, they, they didn't really leave the door open for a ton of possibility of it. So, yeah, listen, I get I get it. You know, they, they got to hype up the announcement to – to get everybody there and and you know, everybody watching that that was on Zoom and whatnot, but it definitely wasn't major. Yeah, I mean, I agree with you, Mike. I was really hoping it was going to be a third driver announcement. In fact, I was almost convinced that it was just based off of the time of year that we're in right now. But it's still cool. Uh, I kind of talked about it a little bit after the Road America weekend. But the thing that's really impressed me with McLaren has specifically been their sponsors and the sponsor engagement that they've brought to the sport so if nothing else I you know makes me happy that they're even more invested and you know maybe work that much harder to keep and retain and recruit new really active and engaged sponsors yep so we love to see that aspect of it so that's pretty awesome that they're going to be in IndyCar for a while uh, Christian Lungard is making his IndyCar debut this weekend at the Agajanian Grand Prix he is going to be stepping into the seat that Santino Ferrucci has occupied for five races this season. Looks like he tested at Barber with the team not too long ago, so it's not like he's just jumping in for the very first time, but he does still have some getting up speed to do, I'm assuming. So uh, lighting in one word, how uh, would you describe your 
feelings about Lungard making his IndyCar debut, who is the, for those who don't know, Alpine, uh, what do you call it, academy driver. He's currently in F2, won two races last year. So what's one word you would use to maybe describe how you're feeling about that? Surprised. Host? Intrigued. I was going to say kerfuffled. I I mean I get some I get some grief sometimes for making up words. I don't know if that's actually a word, but eh, it's a word enough. All right. You know what's that's the what is confusing is the F two has essentially like they've had like the last seven weeks off and then they have two race weekends coming up and then they have ten weeks off until the end of the year. So from a timing perspective, good for him for, you know, getting some, some valuable seat time, especially in in IndyCar, but yeah, it it def- it still caught me off guard. Still, still not something I would have expected in the middle of a an F two season to you know take your focus away, which I guess isn't that big of a deal because they're on you know a six month break right now. Yeah, what I found most surprising about it was, I mean, I think it's been pretty obvious that High V has been getting more and more involved, and I'm assuming Santino is a big reason for that, and they for some reason really love Santino and coming back to Indianapolis where he made his debut with High V. You would think that it would make sense for High V to remain on the car at Indy, so that was a bit odd to me. Um, but I did just in a you know a brief uh, Wikipedia search um, of Mr. Lungard find it interesting that he too raced for Trident. So maybe Trident is just turning into the. <laughs> feeder team to Ray Hall Letterman Lanigan Racing. All right, so in the interest in the interest of fairness though, Lighting just said one positive thing about Santino. So could you quick just say one negative thing about Santino to balance it out? He's short. You're not Lighting. Well, Mike literally took the words out of my mouth, so <laughs> What's wrong with being short? Host, you're not exactly an NBA player. No, I never said I was, but Santino is one of the few people who is over the age of 21 who's actually still shorter than me so you know, that's that's all i got i'm surprised people over the age of 21 even talk to you yeah me too <laughs> i do have some words on christian lungard from craig woolard who writes for formula scout and obviously covers the european series much closer than than we do aggressive driver really likes to really likes these natural road courses and will do really well at Indy based on his skill and pace that he's shown this year. Has had dreadful luck all year. Off track, super funny, and loves to joke around. Will fit in nicely with the Indy car paddock. Super mature for somebody who's really young. So that is our three-sentence scouting report that I got, I think, at like 2 o'clock in the morning when I when I landed in Philly this so, morning. So the opposite of Santino. Hey, Santino's pretty fun. I'm sorry. I mean, Santino's Satan then sucks part. at everything. Oh, I'm like, Santino Satan sucks at everything. I forgot. Sorry. Sorry. Oh. I'll do better of that. Yeah. You have to be more negative, Matt. Yeah. I mean, he's only got, does he still have more points than, no, probably not Hinch anymore. Is he still like doing better than Kellett in the standings? Does that even count? No, I'm, yeah. Lighting jumps in the car right now and he'll beat Kellett by the end of the year. All like, right. Well, to uh, transition to the. Curb Grand Prix, or whatever we're calling it, kind of on the back of this Lungard news. So it's it's this was what the second race on the calendar last year was the Grand Prix, or no? Because it was Texas, then I was technically the Harvest Grand Prix ish. Well, they had like thing. three of them last year. So yeah. Oh yeah, you're right. You're right. This anyways, was like the July Fourth one last year. So if you were an IndyCar driver, 
making your very first start at a track, is there a quote unquote, and I'm not saying any track is technically easy, but is there an easier track to make your debut at than the Grand Prix layout at Indy? I don't think so. No. I don't think the so. The only one I would say is quote unquote easier, and I'm not not in like a oh it's easy to drive kind of way would be Indianapolis just because you get 10 days to practice for the thing versus like I, if you showed up to Asheville you get yeah. two and a half three sessions and then it's like qualifying so I'd say the only one just because the amount of practice you get if you have some sort of oval knowledge would be Indianapolis but I think the Grand Prix layout has to be up there for sure as far as the easiest ones to make your debut at so I think we may have to actually keep our eyes on him. I don't think we'll have to necessarily relegate him to the back of the grid right away, especially since that entry doesn't look like a slouch based on Santino's fantastic results. I will, however, say that his top 10 streak ended, so there's my negative spin on that. Yeah, what a bum. Yeah, I know. Loser. (laughs) Just kidding. I really like Santino. So, yeah, so I don't know... If there's, I mean, other than just kind of the odd nature of this weekend, that has been something that fans have been asking for for a long time, which is just some sort of NASCAR, IndyCar crossover at the same weekend. And I will say it is on good timing with uh, IndyCar between the video game announcement, between the rising car count, the new TV deal, and now the TV ratings are just better than we've ever seen them ever in my opinion at least in our in me and david's modern lifetime and in mike's you know kind of over the hill lifetime <laughs> i i expected that one. <laughs> once we're past his midlife just for crisis. everybody listening i am not actually offended by the the jokes because somebody actually asked me that in nashville oh it's no all, it's all good oh god who was it was it mcbridge no, to be honest with you, I don't. I don't know who it was. I don't remember. That's that's worse than me insulting you about your age. Is the fact that you don't even remember yeah. who it was. Yeah. All right. Well, we have it on record. And if Mike wanted to make fun of any of my, we'll say downfalls, it is okay. I yes. mean, lighting does it, so anybody can do it. Where was I going with that? I got distracted. Uh, IndyCar TV ratings. Oh yeah. So the TV ratings are fantastic. So I'm glad someone here is listening. The The TV ratings are fantastic, and it's no secret that NASCAR definitely has a lot of attention on them when they go to circuits and whatnot. So I can imagine the crossovers can only help IndyCar this weekend. So, and I guess I don't know what channel it's on, if I'm being honest, right now in front of me. But NBCSN. Okay, so it is on NBCSN. Do we see this race outrating Nashville, which was the highest cable-rated IndyCar race in 23 years? No. Mm, no. The only reason I would say no is just because it's on a Saturday at noon slash one. I think that would be the only thing holding it back. But I think the, the fact that NASCAR is also helping promote the weekend can only help but i'm still i don't think it's going to be a bad tv rating weekend by any stretch i think it'll still be like very impressive compared compared to years past so yeah there's also gonna be like 700 cars at the track so i'm sure it'd be cool to walk around you know there's 44 xfinity entries this weekend i don't know how many nascar has let's just let's just round up and say 40 so we're at 
84 between the two of them plus 28 indy cars so that's over 100 cars i that's that's as far as my math skills go without pulling out a calculator but it's pretty impressive that they're all i don't know where they're all gonna they're gonna go because there's definitely not 100 garages but i'm i'm intrigued to get there friday morning and and walk around it's gonna be a sad sight if indycar gets relegated out of the garages at their home track I really hope that doesn't happen. I've been thinking that for the last two days because, I mean, listen, would it shock me? No, but I really hope, like, Xfinity gets pushed in the back. No offense to Xfinity, but... Is Cup a one-day show, or are they... To be honest with you, I have no... No, because they have practice on Friday as well in between between IndyCar sessions before qualifying. And since we're on that topic, the Big Machine Spiked Coolers Grand Prix practice starts at three on friday then qualifying so there's only one practice qualifying is at 7 p.m friday night on nbcsn so for those on the facebook that were complaining about the lack of regular tv qualifying coverage complain no more <laughs> and then the race is listed at 12:45 on saturday midday i don't know if that's green flag time or tv coverage time but Probably not going to be too much pre-race. I'm assuming you're going, correct? Yes, I fly Thursday afternoon. What is that going to be like? Is it going to be like, you know, is the scene in Braveheart where you have England versus Scotland kind of across the <laughs> field? When you get to the media center, is it going to be like NASCAR media versus IndyCar media with like Marshall Pruitt having his face painted white and blue and saying, they can take our land, but they can never take our freedom. You know, I will pay... You know who would do, do we need to get David Malsher to do that cuz he's got the <laughs> accent to pull it off. Let me let me send him a message tonight and we'll see what we can do cuz I'm pretty sure he'll be there. I know Marshall won't, but anyway, yeah, no. I'm I most of the NASCAR media guys seem pretty friendly those that I've interacted with and we'll be doing a couple Xfinity interviews since Ryan Eversley's in Xfinity again and Spencer Pompelli who's another IMSA guy trying to get him too, so Ooh, you Thanks ask, to Ryan you for agreeing. Sage. Yeah, I mean that would probably be an easy one. The problem is I I don't really know what team he's on, so I don't, <laughs> I don't even know how to schedule that. One. Um, and I guess that's another thing about the crossover too. It doesn't hurt having the NASCAR media there to also just kind of have IndyCar right in front of them, front and center, to kind yeah. of view and look at and whatnot. Lighting you have... making the trek down? No, I uh, initially I was thinking about it, but after in Nashville last week and that being the third race of the year probably just can't swing it this year but um, I'm hoping it's a good race and to your point about the NASCAR media being there you know I have a feeling they will put on a good show just considering the fact that you know everything that went down in Nashville I think people are going to keep their nose relatively clean or at least try to and the track is probably going to feel eight times wider than it truly is <laughs> so maybe that will invite some people to to make some bolder moves and you know a good race with more media coverage can only you know keep boosting the ratings yeah so um if nothing else we can kind of get to the should we make our predictions yeah the predictions here so uh just a reminder there's not too much to preview as far as drivers other than you know Lungard is is coming in and Elio Cody Ware is doing both yeah, Cody Ware is going to be back. IndyCar and NASCAR. Elio's back. 
So kind of basically the same that we saw at Nashville minus uh, Ferrucci. Correct. Good good for nothing slouch. I'm really trying this whole balance thing. I don't like it. The point situation after Nashville is Palo now has a 42-point lead over Dixon, who's now P2. Award, uh, 48 back. Newgarden, 75 back. And Erickson, 79 back. If you're betting at Vegas uh, before the season and you had one of those five drivers as your champion and you have money on them, congratulations because it's probably going to be one of those five at this point. Uh, Ray Hall's the next closest at minus 124. So I really think it's going to be one of these five that is going to be the champion here. So, Mr. David Lighting, who do you have doing good this weekend? I don't really think it's uh, a shocker, but I think Jack Harvey's going to have a good weekend. He seems to always do extremely well uh, on the, on the Grand Prix circuit. Um, I think he really wants to perform well in the last few races for Meyer Shank, just cause again, I think this is a, a happy breakup if you can consider it that. So, uh, I have a feeling Jack is going to be pushing a little extra hard this week. Good one. Although his team really needs to up their strategy game because yet again, they botched it this weekend. I don't even know how. And Elio's strategy is fine, but that's neither here nor there. Yes. We'll, we'll save that for another day i'm gonna go with i'm gonna go with graham rahal he also tends to have good results at this track and had a top five or top six finish in in nashville so it's got some good momentum if he can qualify just a little bit better he can be in podium contention pretty easily and i will say mr Poleman roman grosjean is going to continue his success from the last race and carry that over to this one Mr. Lighting, who's going to do bad? Don't say Kellett. I'm not going to say Kellett. I, I I have a feeling, just based on how his luck seems to ebb and flow more than anybody else in the series, I just have a gut feeling that Hunter Ray is going to have a disappointment. Um, you know, I don't know if that means, you know, outside the top 15 or what we're considering a disappointment at this point for RHR just because it seems like what ever can go wrong will go wrong but i just don't see him having a, a result to match what he did in nashville yeah i think there's things called opinions and things called takes and i think what you just said was more on the borderline of factually correct i would agree i am going to say that elio castro neves has a bad weekend he's gonna have all this pre-race hype because he won the 500 he's doing a ceremony thursday evening and yeah that's literally he's just going to be distracted and that's my reason <laughs> <laughs> all right i'm gonna say uh since he finished in the top 10 this weekend i think it's okay to pick him i'm gonna say ed jones is not gonna strike gold twice in a row um we'll consider that a one-off you know what's disappointing is i'm gonna be in st louis this weekend for a, a family wedding I really wish it was next weekend because I could have just popped over to the race. I didn't even think about that until yesterday. I was really sad. I just have to say, before we go there, I just have to say, every time we're at the track and we walk past an Ed Jones sign or Michelle sees his car, she looks at me and she goes, who? Ed Jones. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, no. I love it. That's fantastic. Does Travbert know about this? I don't know if he does. He that should, because like she did it. She she did it at Road America a few times. We were literally walking the pedestrian bridge at Nashville, and she like elbowed me, and she goes, "Who?" And then I yelled, "Ed Jones." Yeah, that seems like mm -hmm. a Travbert thing that he needs to know about. Lighting, who's your dark horse top ten? 
You could say who. Who? Takuma Sato. Oh, that doesn't work. <laughs> he is I a know, dark horse for the top ten, though. He is a dark horse for the top ten. And the reason I'm going with it is uh, kind of in line with what you were saying earlier about Lungard. Uh, I think the Ray Hall cars tend to perform fairly well at the IMS road course, and I also think Takuma knows that his options are waning and he needs to put on a good performance. So, I'm going to go with Scott McLaughlin for this one. He's had a string of just dismal results lately. Some his fault this week, this past weekend, as I'm sure we'll touch on not his fault, but I'll go with McLaughlin. I really wanted to go with Lungard, but I don't want to put all my eggs in the uh, Ray Hall basket for success this weekend. Good, because I'm picking Lungard. Let's get a lad. <laughs> I have faith in you, man. Let's do it. Nashville time. So let's start with the race. So the top Pretty five boring. was launch and win Marcus Erickson finishing P1, Dixon, Hinch, Hunter Ray, and Rahal. If anybody told you that was the top five before the race, they are straight up lying to you. There is no one in the world that knew that that was happening. Fact. And I saw the fantasy IndyCar graphic that the IndyCar account tweeted today, and like everybody bombed, which is exactly what you would expect after a race like this. So Fact. let's take it from the top. Somehow Colton Herta got an IndyCar pull by like six tenths of a second, which is something straight out of like 1987. It was insane. Uh, so he had the pull, looked like the shoe in favorite come race time. And the race kind of just, it it delved a little bit, we'll say. So first yellow was Kellett because the steering wheel fell off or something. Second yellow was Marcus Erickson going full launch mode straight to Saturn. Elon Musk give him a job kind of thing over Sebastian Bourdais on a restart. I guess we could start there. Do you think there was carelessness involved with Erickson there? Do you think it was kind of a racing deal? What happened in your guys' eyes? Can I go back to the the uh, first caution, the Dalton Kellett one? And Only if you I know that, him. No, I'm not going to because that was just a weird just a really weird instance but no pun intended but I feel like that's literally when the wheels came off for this race because I think if they would have stayed green for the first two or three laps that we would have had a probably half as many cautions as we did in this race. So I just wanted to throw that out there. So that it I is think Kellett's that... fault. Sure, we'll say it's Kellett's fault, not A.J. Foy Racing's fault. Okay, just make sure we're on the same page there. Just for for reference point for you two so that people at home know, Lighting, where were you, where were you watching the race from at the track? The top row of the Grandstand 9 in Turn 11. So right across from like the midpoint of uh, pit road along the stadium okay so not so you're like the turn before start finish correct yep okay and then mike were you watching from the pits yes okay just want everybody to keep that in mind as we're talking about this so then uh erickson any malice racing incident what do you guys think little little bit of carelessness but at the same time you you saw it literally every restart, even when there wasn't actually an incident. Guys were kind of swerving to the left or to the inside because other guys were checking up. It happened almost on every restart. So a little bit of carelessness maybe, but it's hard to really fault him because he you know it's it's a it's a chain reaction and you know a chain reaction that's all of you know a third of a second. So I I don't 
think he and he did it on purpose. I don't think he was being reckless or anything. Just you know, it's it, just a little lack of focus, which is understandable considering cars are weaving in and out, trying to pass before that corner. Is this the third time Bourdais gotten hit from behind this year? <laughs> At least. Well, I can and remember the other two. Where's the, the where was the third one? Is it Texas? Oh, was he collected in both Texases, I guess? Yeah. So, it, people are going to call me crazy for this, and I'm not saying I buy into this take, but maybe I should just to sound like I know what I'm talking about. But, I mean, at what point is it a trend that you're the one that keeps getting, keeps getting run over? I mean, could there be something in his restart technique where, you know, he's backing off to try to get a run, and that's throwing people off behind him? Again, I'm not saying it's on him, but the fact that this has now happened a number of times, it's just like, at what point is it a trend? In Texas, it wasn't on a restart. Yeah, I would disagree with that one. I think because Texas 2, everybody Texas was... Texas 1, Newgarden hit him in the corner. Right, and he was slowing down too because someone in front of him was going obscenely slow. That's correct. That's right. I, for some reason, I thought that one was under yellow. But yeah, you're right. I think the I think it was more circumstantial. I mean, I don't think Erickson was being greedy or anything like that. I mean, no driver wants to pass you by running over you. It's just not how it works. So I don't I don't think he I think it was just kinda caught him off guard. I don't know how much blame I put on him. I mean obviously he ruined his race, but you know, I think it was just a circumstantial thing. I kinda wanna segue from this to the next one, which is the next yellow anyways. So you guys had referenced carts starting out. Uh and that was was air Ixon. Was that in front of you lighting? Which one? When he went full airborne. Uh, it was we couldn't see it because the trees that parallel pit road and the straightaway. It was but a little to your right. Uh, okay. A little to my left. Okay. 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 But it was Sorry. in that general area. So yeah. the area we're referring to is the turn before you take the start finish straight, technically. And so we saw a bunch of cars. You know, we got the green flag, but then you saw cars coming up to the last turn trying to pass people because the rule in IndyCar is is once the green flag goes and restart, you're good to pass wherever you want. So we get to the next one here where the green flag is thrown, and I think Will Power and Simon Pagano are squabbling over ninth or 10th or somewhere in that region. And they go into the final turn, and it looked like just a either careless move by power or a general miscommunication. Because if I'm Pagano, I'm like, why is he trying to pass me? We're not even on the start-finish straight yet. And so Pagano gets put into the tires, and we see a Baltimore slash St. Pete turn four or five, whatever, kind of parking lot crash. We don't see too many of those anymore, really. Um so there's yeah there's just a parking lot I think a total 10 or 11 cars were involved Jimmy Johnson got uh, damaged then disqualified for trying to help his team under red uh, or Jimmy I know Sato retired Renus had significant damage that needed to be fixed beyond the garage um, I think that was it for like the huge damaged cars yeah I think Cody Ware needed a new front wing too new front wing for him uh, saw or Pagano need a new front wing too. I'm imagining. So it was just a cluster. So I guess that leads me to, and I this could be one of the infrastructure things we talked about at the end too. But I'll just kind of bring it up now since it's kind of the main topic here. Does it at all make no sense why they just didn't do restarts in the same place they started the race? Doesn't that seem like the more logical thing to do? I agree, and that was talked about on the driver radio <laughs> during the race by about 
five or six different guys and I get why they did it because it's the same way as mid-Ohio. You know, mid-Ohio starts on the back section and start finish is, is for restarts, but I would I I would abort that immediately and, and never use that format at Nashville again. Yeah, I agree 100%. Um, after the first two instances down there, the rest of the race, it was kind of like hold your breath, especially where we were sitting because you could see it all playing out in front of you. And there was probably another half dozen near misses down in that corner. Um, and just seemed completely unnecessary that, you know, we needed to use the start or not the start, but the finish line as the restart zone. Yeah, I mean, call me ignorant, but how hard would it be to just change the turn numbers for next year? So the turn six uh, grandstand that was being built, is that kind of where they were? That was the first turn technically on lap one, correct? Eight or nine, I think, is the technical number. Okay. Call me ignorant, but how hard would it be to just move the start finish to where they kind of wanted to restart or start the race there? Because we it's it's not we have a precedent for having a street race where the pit road is not near turn one. And that be the big one in my mind would be Sao Paulo. Sao Paulo, you had the straight, and then you had like three or four turns, and then you had the pit road. So it's not like it's something they haven't done before. Why can't we have turn seven, eight, six, whatever, be turn one, but still have the pit roads where they would be? Because, you know, kind of logistically, it's the only place you can have the pits. I, I think the one thing to think about with that, though, Matt, is from a promoter standpoint, when you're selling tickets, I feel like there's something to be said to corporate sponsors and corporate partners and just race fans in general to say, hey, you're going to be sitting at the finish line. Like, I think there's something about that that people really enjoy because i mean if you think about it especially at nashville with the like the east side club and all that the pit lane suites everything is focused on the finish line with that being said i still think you could conduct all the restarts on that straightaway that leads into what was the first turn under green you could still have the finish line actually on that stadium straightaway just for you know the the pure kind of, hey, all the clubs are around the finish line, uh, driver intros, and, you know, whatever is all at the finish line. I just think there's something from a salesy standpoint that helps sell stuff, you know, in that area of the track. Yeah, and to add on to that, there was the suites that were inside Nissan Stadium. There were the suites that were on pit lane kind of overlooking the start-finish, but... I do. I still do agree with your idea. I think that would be very helpful to the racing. So I think a fair yeah. uh, compromise would be just do all the restarts where they started the race, but keep the turns the same and start finish the same. Because like I don't think there'd be anybody who would be like, we can't do that." Because well, ultimately, ultimately the racing would be better because it's just a better passing opportunity, and restarts tend to be when people jump on those opportunities. Yeah, and I cringed when I saw Hinch say there needs to be some sort of gentleman's agreement going into that final turn when there's restarts because it's like, listen, if the rules state that I can pass somebody once the green flag's going, you know, I don't care if I put you in that barrier in the last turn. I'm going to try. You know, if there's nothing stopping me, I'm going to do it. And that goes back to, you know, Mike's and I rant about gentlemen's agreements and how they don't belong in <laughs> racing or sports in general. Um, So, yeah, I guess the – so Power took out teammate number one. 
then later on got to work on teammate number two and spun McLaughlin in the turn seven, eight area. Um, what do you guys think the team meeting is going to be like at Penske this week? Awkward. Like, real awkward because power ruined Pagano's day unnecessarily, McLaughlin's day unnecessarily. And I'm sure if he was near Joseph, he would have <laughs> ruined Joseph's day by accident. He was just – he. I, I don't know what it was, but he was very unwillpower-like in the amount of destruction he caused this weekend. It was It was something else. I don't even know what to say. I think I'm just like a willpower curse because Road America last year was when he, like, pinballed his way around the track on lap one and <laughs> – took out Hunter Ray, Ray Hall, and then ended up taking out the sign, the sign boards going into 14. So maybe I'm with the willpower problem, just like you're his uh, jinx when it comes Prediction to problem. Yeah. Um, yeah. But indirectly, he did kind of ruin New Garden's day because New Garden was caught up in that, that uh, traffic up. jam and the final turn. Now, not that a ton of cars got through, um, but Graham Rahal was one of the few that was able to sneak through right away, and that significantly improved his day. And Joseph was like, you know, half a tire width away from being able to sneak through there and, you know, really benefiting from it. Yeah. So Power is prone to these kind of races where he just goes full destructo mode and ruins a bunch of people's days. So that's kind of sad. Uh, so in between them and the major drama of the race, let's see. So there was a water leak somehow from a suite in turn three that caused like a, hmm. a flood. I'm trying to see which was it like a nine lap yellow, eight lap yellow. It felt like an eternity. I think I made dinner in between the whole yellow flag. Give me one second. I will. But I have racing reference up. I just can't identify which one of those it was. I think it was might have been the nine I lap yellow. I think caution number six, 41 to 49. Yeah, so it was a nine-lap yellow flag period is, is what I think that was happening. We did get a red flag from that parking lot incident. Grosjean. Grosjean put Pagano on the wall at the end of the bridge. Uh, broke Pagano's suspension, ruined his day. Pado sent it on Rossi in that same turn. Both uh, didn't make contact with the walls but they both did have to engage the reverse gear and back out and wait for the whole field to pass them. So Rossi was set up to have a pretty decent finish. He's close to the podium. Yeah, he was sniffing. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and assume that we can all agree that that was Pato's fault. 100%. I think Pato would say it was Pato's fault. Yeah, absolutely. I think there was a lot telling from Rossi's tweet when he said, adios, Nashville. I don't know if anybody <laughs> else caught on that, but I definitely did. Yeah. Yep. All right, well, I think that's kind of the gist until we get to the Colton Hurd and Marcus Erickson thing. So I have no idea how on earth Marcus Erickson went from airborne to the lead. Did anybody else find it crazy that Colton Hurd had pitted from P1 and basically came out third? I've never seen that at a racetrack before where yeah. cars stay out, a bunch of the leaders pit, and it's not a disadvantage to pit. The That's another thing that maybe we'll discuss later is the blend line for pit in pit out and you can go ahead now if you want yeah how confusing that was because essentially if it was under yellow you could have gone down pit lane and passed cars and it would have been legal if i understand what marshall pruitt and somebody else was saying earlier today so 
let's say you're 12, you jump down pit lane, you pass three or four cars, and you come out in the top 10, and you're battling for a top five. And the confusion surrounding that, Herta thought he should have been second coming out of the pits, not third. And, yeah, I just, it was very hard to follow. I thought it was, I thought it would be less hard, but the, the blend line for pit lane wasn't actually the end of pit lane. It was the end of New Garden's pit box. So there's en- the end of New Garden's pit box to pit exit, which is probably, I don't know, 40 or 50. Coming up on 5-Minute News, I'm Anthony Davis. You might think it's partisan because maybe it's critical of one side or the other, but it's not, it's just the truth. And I think that's also something that's kind of unusual for Americans listening to the radio or to podcasts because the news landscape in the States has been so partisan for so many decades. So 5-Minute News is verified, truthful, independent, unbiased and essential world news daily feet that is not like actually pit lane even though you have to go pit lane speed so does that mean when Newgarden pulls ahead two inches after his exit he's like blended that's how i took it yeah that seems absurdly advantageous to have that spot then holy god yeah that's hey there my name is michael laminato and this is pit pass f1 a brand new podcast that'll take you closer to the action of the world's most prestigious motorsport. From Monaco to Miami and Australia to Azerbaijan, Pit Pass F1 is on the ground and has you covered. Esteemed F1 journalists Julianne Serasoli and Chris Medland will take you inside the sport every round. They'll keep you up to date with the latest news breaking in Formula One and the most influential views shaping the world of Grand Prix racing. Every Friday, we'll be bringing you a track guide and race preview, and Chris and Drew will be in your feed every morning from Saturday through to Monday to keep you up to date on all the day's action on and off the track. So if you want to be in the know on the latest in Formula One, subscribe wherever you get your favourite podcasts and visit us at evergreenpodcasts.com. Pit Pass F1, a brand new show for Evergreen Podcasts. It's just, and, and I think it was just something that was honestly overlooked. I don't think it was an error. I just think it, it just wasn't focused on, and and I'm not saying they need to change it, change you know where pit lane is or anything. They just need, to, you know, the blend line is the end of is is pit exit. Just make it simple because otherwise, the new garden pit box part is makes no sense. Yeah, that was something that was picked up on immediately in the stands too, Matt, was people were like, wait, what? How did Colton Herta just come out there? And especially from where we were sitting, you couldn't tell that the safety car had backed off or the pace car had backed off so much to, like, get through that turn one, turn two, turn three sequence, and, you know, that played a factor in it. But from there on out, I was like, wow, pitting in – any yellow flag situation almost makes too much sense. Yeah, it's like if there's going to be no penalty for it, then pit every time almost. So that was weird. I think they that's one of the things that they need to address for next year, obviously. Again, Erickson somehow is now P1. Colton Herta on his late race charge restarted fifth, sixth, somewhere in that area. And so he was passing cars left and right. He's easily, as Lighting said, worth the price of admission just to watch him. 
and he was in a position now to challenge Erickson for the lead, but Erickson had a supreme, either a supreme straight line advantage or his used reds, as they were trying to describe in the broadcast, were helping him out of the uh, slow corners for the long straights, and therefore Colton couldn't get a run on him. But Colton would easily catch him in some of the slower corners that didn't lead onto long straights. But at the end of the day, Colton could not pass Erickson. So even though he had by far the fastest car in the race, he couldn't get around Erickson for the lead. Erickson was doing a phenomenal job of holding him off. Dixon was on tires that were 40, 50 laps old and still keeping distance with Herta. And then we get to the point where Herta's pushing just unfortunately a little too hard and he crashes in the turn seven, eight, whatever. And you could just see he's not an emotional dude at all. And you could see how sad he was. He was bawling his eyes out in the back of the AMR safety vehicle. Just felt so bad for him. So I, what did you guys leave this weekend, you know, feeling about Colton Herta as a driver and as a competitor? He is top tier talent, definitely in the top tier of drivers. He, I mean, without that flat spot, he got a couple laps earlier may not have even crashed there but I mean you could tell how hard he was pushing and watching him drive through that tight section you know four or five six seven whatever whatever exact turns it was was really something amazing to see because he didn't put it wrong once except until he came out of there and hit the wall so all weekend practice qualifying obviously you know like Matt said earlier you he was six tenths quicker than second place and even on black tires and qualifying he was quicker than most everybody in in group two it was just it was really a remarkable performance and you hate to see that the finishing line shows him 19th and he really deserved let's just say a podium let's let's say he burns the tires and drops one more position but you know either way he had you know a hell of a weekend yeah, dude is bad fast. I mean, he is fun to watch, whether it's on TV or, or at the track. There was a few times watching him in both qualifying and in the race. You could just see him working so physically hard in the car that that was just, it's not to sound cliche, but you love to see it because it's like that's why we watch racing and that's why we cheer for, for these drivers is to, to watch performances that are that impressive. Um at this rate, if he continues to qualify on street courses like this and can keep doing it on road courses, I don't think it's too far-fetched to say he could have a longer career in IndyCar than Will Power and potentially out-qualify Will Power's pole record, um, considering how good he is at such a young age. Um, as far as racecraft goes, he's definitely improved over the last couple of years, but one of the things he struggled with since Indy Lights is saving his tires. I mean, I remember a few times in Indy Lights, he burned them up after he built a huge lead, and he'd end up finishing second or third just because he had no tires left at the end. And I literally looked at Michelle before the race and said, Colton Herta will most likely win this race unless he ends up burning up his tires too quickly and he ends up binning it because he has either a flat spot or he's worn everything down to nothing. Um so if there's one knock on Colton Herta, it's that I don't think he's very very good at conserving the tires to the level of somebody like Joseph Newgarden, Scott Dixon, and, and those you know perennial contenders. And that takes time. You know, Colton's 21. So do I think he can get there? 
he's improved his race like you said he's improved his racecraft already so yes i do think he can get there and i like your comment on will powers pole record or almost pole record is Mar- is, does he have the pole record now no, why am i drawing he's the still blank mario. on this okay so he's he's i know he's within 10 of mario i think, it's, I think he can i think it's one isn't it oh is it really okay like one or two i thought i can tell you in a yeah. second here <laughs> oh wait no i yeah, can't perfect you, no i might be able to that might be on my laptop here but yeah i i was very impressed this weekend and it was it, it was definitely fun to see i mean just all weekend you could see that car bouncing around but it didn't look like he was ever out of control until he hit the wall no and and, and i agree with you mike i think his racecraft is gonna get there i mean it, it with a kid that's as talented as him it's gonna get there i mean look how long it took even joseph newgarden to find his way to victory lane and colton Herta did it you know 20 times quicker than than joseph did um and just kind of random comment here the group i'm really happy for is GameBridge. uh to have invested as much as they have in the 500 the series this team it makes me happy that they're getting you know the screen time and close to the results that they deserve uh, obviously colton's got a win earlier this year probably should have had a podium this week but uh good for them and happy to see a a sponsor that's been committed to the sport be rewarded yeah so colton i think is going to be a statistical god like lighting just alluded to and to answer the question so powers at 62 and mario's at 65 so i think maybe within a year or two that record will be broken now we kind of arrived to the end of the race so erickson wins uh after all this craziness and drama, it was a Ganassi 1-2. Go figure. <laughs> I guess we'll start off with uh, with two questions that are kind of overarching. So the first one is, what were your guys' overall thoughts about like the race? Like Memorable, thanks but no thanks. I've got faith for next year that they'll improve some things. Like, What are your guys' – like, did you love it? Did you hate it? Where were you guys at with that? Ultimately, I was thoroughly entertained. Um, you know, I always like a good balance of long green flag runs with an occasional caution mixed in just to kind of throw strategy off or throw something off. Um, nine cautions is a bit excessive for my liking. Uh, what was frustrating, I think, as a fan in attendance was just as you felt like the race was getting in a rhythm, you know, it would just fall apart right there. Uh, ultimately, I, again, thoroughly enjoyed the race. I do think it will only improve over time, and I'm excited to see, um, you know, where or what Nashville looks like in 2022. I think I said this to, God, who was I walking with? Oh, Krista Hardy walking out of the, the track Sunday night at, like, I don't know, some ridiculously late hour in the evening. But there were obviously things that could be fixed, pit lane, maybe open up the the tighter section just a little bit but i think overall you know this isn't one of those one and done type tracks this isn't a new orleans where i don't ever want to come back there's a lot of potential and everything that we've mentioned as maybe you know issues are all pretty fixable and and some stuff you know there weren't a ton of trash cans or there weren't water bottle filling stations until saturday afternoon all that stuff is fixable and it's first year mistakes that that tracks or promoters make and it's really not a huge deal at the 
end of the day. I don't know if I'm allowed to say that since like I got a credential and everything to be there, but it's just you know just chiming in a, a you know and and giving my two cents on things. And it was you know it's the the city embraced IndyCar. It wasn't just race fans coming in. There was a ton of locals. You saw IndyCar shirts all over the city all weekend. Even when I was at lunch on Thursday before I actually even went to the track and I was, I don't know, 10 miles from the track, there were people with IndyCar hats. There were people with IndyCar hats and shirts in the airport yesterday evening when I flew home. I didn't fly home until 8 o'clock central time. So, I mean, it was really cool to see. There were signs, billboards all over, outside the city, inside the city. I think it's an imp- it was very impressive, and I... With some tweaks, it it will be fine in the long run. Yeah, I, I tweeted that it gave me some major Baltimore vibes, and Baltimore was one of my favorite tracks uh, for the three years that it ran. So I think the long-term success of this event will be dictated by the tweaks that they make for next year and just how much the community embraces it. And I think given the layout, I mean, I'm not an expert in the Nashville area, but it doesn't seem like it disrupts life too much for everybody which I think is very positive. And one of the thing, one of the reasons street races don't get successful is because if there's too many people in the local community that hate it, it's just something that they're not going to put up with and just decide to stop running the race. Yeah, when I, I took an Uber Thursday morning over to the credential office to pick up my credentials for the weekend, and my Uber was saying, oh, there's going to be so many roads closed, this is going to be a nightmare. I didn't really see that as an issue. The streets obviously were, you know, close to the track were closed, but I was still able to Uber within a block of the track every morning and and every evening. So, and and downtown was unaffected, you know, where where all the touristy stuff is and all the bars are. So, I don't. It didn't have the impact that my Uber driver at seven o'clock in the morning thought it would. Weird. No. Yeah, I would agree with that, uh, Mike. On Thursday morning, we went to this place called the Pinewood Social, which was just oh, I love that place. Yeah, it's an awesome, it's an awesome place to hang out. They got some outdoor pools, they got the bowling alley, delicious food. Um, but that was just um, on the oh god, directionally challenged. It was just outside the tight section on the city side of the river, and even our Uber driver dropping us off there on our way there was like oh i'm worried that it's going to be tough to get there because of the road closures but we were able to pull right up they had signs out that said you know parking for a few days is going to be a little bit different Um, but then the rest of the week our uber drivers said no this hasn't really impacted us really whatsoever which is great to know um and as far as the city embracing it goes that was something that i really got a kick out of too um and to your point, Mike, was just all the people wearing IndyCar gear and all the, the IndyCar-sponsored ads around town. But one of the things that caught me, I don't want to say by surprise, but it it wasn't what I expected to hear necessarily, um, was the comments from the locals saying they couldn't believe how affordable it was to go to the race. Uh, I'm sure everyone saw on Twitter um, you know, people complaining and in the Facebook comments and the racer.com article comments that this race would never survive because it's so expensive to take a family of four and it's ungodly um, pricey for food and paddock passes and this and that, which hand up as a guy that goes to road America every year. Yeah, this is quite a bit more expensive to attend. However, 
everything in the Nashville area is a premium. Food is much more expensive. Drinks are much more expensive. And talking to people from the local area, they were saying this is one of the most affordable sporting events you could go to, uh, especially when you mix in the concerts. The one guy I talked to said a three-day ticket is actually cheaper than most concert tickets in the Nashville area. So with that being said, I don't think they will necessarily price themselves out of the local area. Now, will that keep diehard IndyCar fans from traveling from, you know, a thousand miles away on a regular basis, perhaps, but I think it suits the local area pretty well. Yeah, I saw a lot of people complaining about $5 for a bottle of water, and I I said a couple times, listen, if you go to any sport sporting game, you know, since we were on the Titans property all weekend, you go to an Eagles game, you go to a Bears game, you go to a Packers game, a bottle of water is at least $5. I know at a Flyers game, it's like $6 for like a soft pretzel. So I saw $5 for a bottle of water, and I was like, okay. I don't, I don't see the big issue here. No, and the thing I got a kick out of was the beer vendors. It was like 10 or $11 for like a 16-ounce can of beer. Yeah. And at first I was like, whoa, that's like way more expensive than Lambo or you know Miller Park or something. But then when we were on Broadway, I ordered a single bottle of Miller Lite, <laughs> and it was like $9.52 after taxes. I was like, all right, I guess paying 10 bucks for a beer that's a little bit bigger at the track actually isn't that big of a ripoff. Not that I was going to go buy a bunch because I didn't feel like spending that kind of money on beer at a racetrack. But, again, their pricing structure was not out of line with similar events, like you said, either on that property or in that area. And so we actually, Shannon and I, the elevator down to the media center, which, by the way, was in the basement of the stadium. I walked by the helmet cart every mm-hmm. time I got off the elevator. We took the elevator up to the suites, just kind of seeing if we were allowed to walk around there, and we were. And all the concessions were open up there. They were all free for all the, I think those were like the $1,500 ticket packages and whatnot. But there was a sea of people up there. So they, they definitely weren't lacking for people who wanted to spend the money for the cool view and the cool atmosphere and so yeah i i think they'll be fine which i matt you probably want to get something in here but i should say mike no you guys just keep going that ticket package that that fifteen hundred dollar ticket package was actually for two people for the full weekend and okay i don't know if that got you in the paddock or not i don't believe it might have nonetheless so seven hundred and fifty dollars per person for three days Got you three days at the racetrack, three nights of concerts, and all you could eat and drink for those entire days. The food was free. I know that. And, again, I'm not saying I'm going to go spend that kind of money because clearly we didn't spend that kind of money because we were sitting in the grandstands. But, again, just point being, when you're talking about the, the bang for your buck, it's really not that terrible when you look at just some of the other kind of VIP packages at some of these other racetracks so yeah but when you talk about 1500 bucks at road america that gets you two weekend passes and like 62 cases of spotted cow and a whole lot of ears of corn yes Uh, a bushel of corn so i guess the only thing i have to say about what you guys just said because i was not there obviously is kind of another thing i tweeted about where you know there were some definitely some people fired up on social media um you know negatively Either, you know, that was a ripoff, I paid too much money and left halfway through the race after the caution, or 
people watching at home. Like, this is a disgrace. Drivers running into each other way too much. Too many cautions, whatever, whatever. And I just don't understand in this environment that we are in now, you know, socially, politically, social media-wise, how if you have to have an opinion about something, it has to either be 100% for it or 100% against it. So even if it was the worst race ever, like Richmond 09, guarantee there would still be people on social media who'd be like, yep, love IndyCar, great race, never going to bat an eye at them, best series in the world, best drivers in the world, I love them. I don't care if there was no passes or no passes for the lead. I will support them to the end of the earth. And then on the other side, it's never watch an IndyCar again. Burn it down. Tony George can go away. Things like that. I think in Nashville is kind of a perfect example of that, where it's like if you were someone watching on TV and weren't outraged about how bad it was, then you have a bad take. I think there's a little bit of both. I could think you could say there was a lot of drama in the race. I think it definitely kept us on our toes. I think... You know, like we said, if with the proper tweaks, it could be a really good race. But at the same time, you can also say that some of these tweaks should have been realized beforehand and some of these problems should have been troubleshooted before we got to that point. And that it's a little disappointing that some of these things went without being noticed until it got to the big stage. So I think you can have both opinions, people. It is okay to kind of accept the goods and bads in not only the Nashville Grand Prix, but I think maybe in other situations too. You can always try to recognize the good and bad in situations instead of going straight for one or the other. That's kind of like my mini rant for the day about that. Look at you being all philosophical I know. It's weird. Sorry. So, Matt, let me ask you then. On that same note, since we live in a knee-jerk world where either everything's great or everything's bad, do you think the track actually needs to be updated for next year to put on a proper race? Yeah, so that was one of the other topics that we were going to talk about here. I know we're running a little long on time, but that's okay. Uh, we're being constructive. We're not just sitting here talking about where's our quarterback at. Um <laughs> I think the only part of the track that I'd be like, eh, other than the uh, the pit exit, and I think they need to sort that out, obviously, for next year so you can't gain an advantage by pitting, is the, the end of the bridge in the downtown section. I think that's obscenely tight down there. I didn't even know it was going to be that tight until someone like tweeted a picture of it when they did the track walk. I'm like, good God, you can't fit two cars through there. So... I think that puts drivers in a jeopardizing position like the Pagano-Grosjean situation. Like, yeah, Grosjean probably shouldn't have sent it there, but if that was a normal corner, I think Pagano would have just been just fine. So I think that would be the only part of the track where I'm like, that needs a significant rethink. Other than that, I thought the layout actually worked pretty well, and I think the bridge was definitely not as scary as I thought it would be because um, it seemed like the sketchy part of the bridge was the transition from bridge to not bridge at the exits of the bridge, and that's where, like, Jimmy Johnson lost it, and, oh, and, like, McLaughlin almost lost it. I'd say those are, you know, I don't know if they can do anything as far as surfacing, but, the yeah, as far as them going over the bridge, I never felt at any moment like, oh, my God, like, there's a river underneath them, they're toast. Yeah, I think the layout as a whole, though, like the the landscape, the backdrops, the Nissan Stadium, and then the passing zones that were available, I think it all worked kind of well. I just wanted to say I agree with Matt on what section to fix, and kudos to the guys for smoothing out some of the bumps on the bridge over the weekend. I don't know if it actually made a difference, but I, I know the drivers 
I think it was the entrance to the bridge coming out of turn two or three or whatever that was that they they smoothed out a little bit so that when you hit the bridge you weren't kind of like launching in the air a little bit but yeah I agree I think that would be the one part of the track I would fix the main reason I asked was I think a lot of people looked at the layout and blamed the nine cautions on a terrible track layout which I don't think is fair um, again, I agree with the recommendations you guys had, but I don't think it's fair to blame the track for the nine cautions. Um, I don't think you have to look any further than St. Pete 2018, where there was eight cautions. You know, it happens sometimes. Yeah, and that's going to be... So I got two topics left here I wanted to throw in before we call it a day, or unless you guys have anything else you wanted to discuss. So topic number one is like you just alluded to. Like, you know, sometimes we do have one of these races where there's just kind of drivers kind of losing their senses and, and making moves that are ill-advised. We saw Erickson... I mean, there's a whole laundry list of penalties that were issued. Um, Erickson had a... I don't know if it was drive through or stop-and-go. Uh, Johnson got disqualified, but that was not for a contact-related incident. Pato got penalized. Grosjean got penalized. Um, Power. Power got penalized once. I didn't understand the whole, like, Pagano red flag thing, how he had to go to the back of the field... I, I think that was pretty shitty. Yeah, so Pelot got screwed in that too, and race the the rule via race control is if you are involved in an incident, you go and and it is red flagged or they have to restart you. You go to the back. And of the that's field. fair. It's a terrible. Yeah, that's. Rule. It's it's a, it's not a dumb rule if they also kick Power's ass back there too. But if Power gets to stay in. P6 or whatever while the 11 or 11 guys got to go to the back. I think that's garbage. Yeah, it. Simon Pagano was actually Polo and Pagano were both extremely frustrated, but Pagano was kind of like, well, my, he just hit me and he's still, you know, I, I think at the time he was closer to the top yeah, 10. Yeah, so than, like if Power went back, that'd be fine. But it's like, it's just Pagano getting punished, even though he was the one putting the tires. Like, how the hell does that make sense? Yeah, I do agree with that point. Speaking of the thing, I was looking at the box score and I couldn't get over this. Speaking of penalties, so Marcus Harrison got two penalties: uh, first for emergency service in a closed pit on lap nine, and then the avoidable contact on the subsequent restart. He also had a total of five pit stops, which is three more than the rest of the top ten cars, which I just think is hilarious. And I know a lot of that was just under yellow. He kept coming in and topping off because he was already at the back of the field. But it's not too often you see someone have more than twice as many pit stops as the next 10 cars and end up winning the race. Yeah, that was pretty crazy. The only thing that pops to my mind in racing would be when Jensen Button did that in Montreal that one year and <laughs> won the race. With these penalties we just mentioned, the contacts we've discussed and whatnot, you know, there were penalties being dished out by race control. Do we need to see stricter penalties next year uh, if, you know, let's say we're like three cautions in the race we're only 20 laps in do we need so like is will power hits pagano do we need to put him on an extremely short leash for the next one like start threatening like a lap penalty parking something to try to get these guys to calm down a little bit yeah i, I might not go extreme as as your penalty suggestions but you know instead of just a stop and go or a drive through okay you get you have five second hold before you can you know five second stop and go something like that sort of you know f1 style just to make them you know because a stop and go obviously it, it didn't really hurt marcus because he was able to 
to get the strategy down, but stop and go can hurt guys, but on 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 a day when there's nine cautions, it's not like a huge detriment. Especially when pit lane isn't really a penalty in itself. Right, exactly. That's where I was thinking a lap because you know if you just do a twenty second stop hold under green sure. and then there's a caution two laps later, it's like that wasn't really. I mean, you go to the back of the field, but it's not really a penalty in that sense. Yeah, you you kind of get off lucky there because you just catch back up to everybody that you're twenty seconds behind. Well, I think yeah, that's fair. Well, the other thing I think is difficult with that though, Matt, is and that's where I think a lap is just the right way to do it. Well, I don't even know about that because let's say in a perfect world they go back to Iowa. You know, the penalty for a crime committed at Iowa might be much more severe than the penalty for that same crime committed at Road America or Nashville. So you got to try to find that balance of, you know, the the penalty meets the severity of the crime no matter what the track is. Yeah, and that's what we kind of talk about on the F1 side is, like, Sebastian Vettel and Kimi Raikkonen colliding for P13 on the last lap at Austria – should not be more severely punished than Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen colliding on turn one in Silverstone when the championship's on the line. Like, to me, one is significantly worse than the other, no matter what happened. So that's where I think that's kind of where my mind is coming around a little bit with race control-wise is that I don't think you can treat each situation as the same. I think it's kind of a – you can't really do it in a black-and-white sense. It's got to be what are the circumstances. Like, yes, a one-lap penalty at – Iowa is nothing if your car's good. A one-lap penalty at Road America, you might as well just pack up and call it a day. So, to me, I think it depends. I do, I do think something like, well, I don't know how Power got away with that first one. That that was absurd to me. Uh, and then the second one, yeah, I mean, I think it's just something a little stricter needs to happen because that would be one way to settle everybody down a little bit is if they knew, because that's what like 2010 to 2013 2014-ish with Bo Barfield I felt like drivers just had like a blank check to do whatever they wanted to each other because they knew the scrutiny wasn't going to happen and it's just like it was so frustrating watching guys go like five wide into a restart into turn one and not caring that they just took a half field and there's no like repercussions or they get like some piddly drive through and still come back and finish fifth like that always disgusted me a little bit I agree. So, last point on this long episode. Oh, we have to we have to do our driver. Oh gosh, yeah, hang on a second. So, um, our predictions. I have to humble brag. So our predictions sucked. Uh, I had Newgarden as good P10. You had Herta P19. Almost, Ugh. almost worked out. Ugh, so close, so close. Bad. I Kell at P23. You had McLaughlin P22. So we nailed that. I don't feel like I can pat myself on the back though. But Dark Horse Top 10, Ed Jones, P6, give me all of that into the bank. Um, uh, unbelievable. Tickle my kidneys and call me Sally. And then you had Harvey, P15. Even, only you would mess that for like up. like the first eight laps. Yeah, no, Jack Harvey's crew messed that up. Well, that's neither here nor there. Yeah, quickly, driver of the day. I mean, for me, it's hard to not say Erickson. I think his comeback, I mean, I know he took out Bourdais, but his comeback to win that is is pretty incredible. Lighting? Uh, RHR. I think he started 14th or something like that, so he gained 10 spots. Again, I know there was a lot of craziness, but he kept his nose clean when others couldn't, and it's just nice to see who I think is an all-around good guy at least uh, have a decent result. I'll take James Hinchcliffe. Started 10th, 
finished third, kept it clean, especially in that pile up. He just managed to have enough awareness to break in time and, and go under the runoff and ended up like 16th after that and, and battled his way back and was able to, to finish third. So good result. Uh, he, he needed it after the way the first 11 races have gone this year. So happy to see him back up on the, on the podium. Matt, how could you not pick Ed Jones? How could you not pick your dark horse to go P26 to 6th? <laughs> Who? How's that not your driver of the day? Who? Ed Jones. I feel like picking him would be boring. I was going to make uh, disappointment of the day. I would say for sure willpower. I think given how his pace was, I think his actions on the track were a little bit clownish and... It's one thing to wreck somebody. It's another thing to wreck not only one, but two of your teammates. So that was very disappointing to see. It's tough for me because there's a whole host of guys I want to say, but I don't think that their result necessarily reflects the day that they had. You could just say host Um, because you said a whole host of people, but you could just say host. Uh, I'm not a driver, thankfully. I'm going to say Pato started in the top ten. You know, could have been a big day for him championship wise and kind of you know did it to himself with the penalty and everything and came home what 13th I think uh yep 13th I will take Joseph Newgarden really just kind of didn't really have a he didn't have a bad weekend but really didn't have a great weekend he was always in that 10 to 15 range in practice obviously binned it in qualifying when he was close to the fast six so yeah I'll go with Newgarden yeah, and I feel like he got the bad end of the Mar- the Erickson Bourdais thing. I think he was the second driver that got screwed on that one besides Bourdais. So, all right, so last topic I wanted to get to, uh, we have the guy drinking beer at the couch perspective. We have the guy on pit lane with the media credentials perspective, and then we have the bearded model guy sitting in the stands. Uh, He's so handsome. <laughs> He's more famous for being on this podcast than he is for being a model, so it's okay, right? So we'll start with Mike. So your overall impressions of what you experienced in Nashville and how likely you would be to go back next year based on everything that you saw. So let me start off with saying I would definitely go back to cover it again. The only problem, there was a few problems, but again, very minor and all fixable. The one that I guess probably isn't fixable is the media center being in the basement of the stadium on the opposite side meant that walking outside to you know, go to pit lane, go to the paddock was a, God, I don't know, 20 minute walk, 25 minute walk. So if you were going over there, like you had to, there was no point in going over there for a quick, Hey, let me look at Jimmy Johnson's car. Like you had to stay over there for a while to make it worth the, the hike. And it didn't help. It was 8,000 degrees on the blacktop, but and like I mentioned, you know, they could have used a few more trash cans. I think another bridge from the infield to the outer side of the track would have helped because they were just mobbed with people anytime a session was about to start or end. Other than that, my my only issue, I forgot to mention this at the beginning, and I don't know, Matt, if I texted you about this, but so we, we released an episode yesterday talking to Bo Lamassis, who was actually one of those guys, one of the guys who was involved in the stadium super trucks fight in mid Ohio. And the lady running it said, okay, it's, it's 
by grandstand six behind behind the grandstand. So okay. So I, I walk in what I think is the right direction. Shannon looks at me and she goes, Are you sure we're headed in the right direction? I'm like, Yeah, I'm totally sure. She gives me like a lukewarm, like, yeah, we definitely are, but like she I know and she had no faith in me. Rightfully so, because we ended up on the far opposite corner of where we needed to be. And end to end to get back there was a good thirty ish minute walk in, you know, ninety five degree heat. So I messed up. That that was really it was just t- it was really tough to get around and figure out how to get around. But again, these are all very minor problems. I don't want to come off as like being super whiny. Like it's all it's all stuff that is fixable. Easier track map to read. Minor things, really not a big deal. I would gladly go back. I would go back again if it was this week, even though it's like even hotter this week than it was on race week. All right, Beardy. Yeah, ultimately, I love the city of Nashville visited one other time and had been looking for an excuse to go back and uh uh inaugural IndyCar race seemed like the perfect excuse and it definitely did not disappoint um I think whether you are a casual fan or a diehard longtime fan this is an event that offers a lot for you just in the way of on-track activities and fan activities being so close to downtown um, one of the things that I was pleasantly surprised with, uh, we sat in a different grandstand for every single session just because I wanted to get a feel for what the rest of the track was like from the fans' perspective. And I think they, for the most part, did a really nice job with grandstand location and what sight lines that provided. Now, there was a few exceptions here and there. and. Like, for our seats, it was a bummer that you couldn't get a clear shot of pit road because there were some trees between pit lane and, you know, the front straightaway. Um, but again, that's just kind of comes with the territory when you're hosting a street race. But by and large, I was very impressed with the sight lines. I was a little bit opposite from Mike. I actually thought that the track was extremely easy to navigate. Um, but I wasn't going from the media center to the paddock. But I thought they did a nice job of having where the fan zone was being very close to all of the grandstands. The fact that they had the stadium opened up and the concourses opened up, even for just the general public for concessions and stuff like that, I thought was great because it provided a ton of shade um, and gave you a kind of a cool look at the stadium. Um, One of the issues we had was the location of our big screen one of the reasons we picked the seats that we did was because we were hoping to have a big screen. Obviously, that is a modern-day luxury in motorsports, not something that we had you know, even 10 years ago at a lot of tracks, um, and was very impressed with the big screens at all the other grandstands besides Grandstand 9 at Turn 11. It was probably a quarter of the size of the rest of the Jumbotrons. It was at ground level and half of the screen was obstructed by trees by pit road. And I made a comment when we sat down uh, that I said, oh, if only that screen was five feet to the right, then we'd all be able to see it. And the guy in front of us turned around and he goes, worst part is it was five feet to the right all weekend, and they just moved it sometime overnight. So that was kind of a bummer. Um, Again, could kind of see it, and, you know, having the IndyCar app and stuff always helps. Uh, but I couldn't see the lap number on the screen, so that you know, again, that's a bummer. And being that we were with a first-time race attendee and our friend Sarah, it always helps having that jumbotron so they can kind of get a feel for what's going on around the track. 
Uh, also noticed the lack of garbage cans, like Mike said, and also was a little disappointed in the volume level of the, the PA system. But again, all things that are extremely fixable. Uh, I think Nashville hit the nail on the head uh, in every other aspect of you know a race fan's wishes. Uh, I would definitely go back, probably not every year, but maybe in every three or four years type of trip that you know we can take and go enjoy the city for a few days and also some awesome racing. Yeah, I think I'm definitely going to circle it on my calendar for next year to get, attend. I think I get sketched out on going to events on the first year uh, just because I do know there are growing pains and whatnot, especially for a street race. Like I was talking to lighting before the show. Like Iowa 2007 had its growing pains, but... I think those pale in comparison to what could go wrong when you're hosting a race in a downtown atmosphere. So, yeah, but I think overall, shout out to the city of Nashville uh, for being awesome hosts. Shout out to IndyCar and the promoters for doing their best to make it work in the first year. Uh, we just hope that you know they're taking some feedback to make some appropriate changes for next season, but I, I think this could be a really good event for the series and, and the social media buzz that you saw from... Even, you know, people who may necessarily not watch IndyCar every week, just seeing the shot of the cars taking the green flag over the bridge come down to that turn really fast, I think, is something that a lot of people can go, wow, that's super cool. So I think they are on the potential for a gold mine here. I think it's just about tweaking and making sure that, you know, the paying fans and the people at home can get some entertainment value out of it so that it doesn't turn into a Baltimore. Matt, your comment just reminded me of one thing I forgot to add. The first practice on Friday, we sat in the grandstands that were, I don't remember the number, but they were on the inside of the track coming off the bridge before that left-hander at the start. And, you know, everyone did their outlap and whatnot, and then the cars came out and started doing their flying laps. And there was a mom and her probably 8-year-old son sitting right next to us, uh, and they had never been to an IndyCar race before. I don't know if they'd ever been to any race. And the first time the cars went by on a flying lap, the mom stood up and her jaw literally like hit the floor, big smile on her face. Her son was jumping up and down and pointing. And I was like, that is what this is all about. It's getting new people out to the track and making it possible for them to experience this. So that in itself was like uh, just awesome to see and, you know, happy to bring IndyCar to a new uh, you know, a new region, a new fan base. Hell yeah. I love what I hear. I think that's a perfect way to end the episode on a happy note since we're coming up on the 90-minute mark, which we've only done once in nearly 400 episodes. Is it really? Yes. I can actually tell you the episode. It was the Indy five. It was the post-Indy 500 qualifying when Hinch got bumped that we went a little over 90 minutes. Damn. And uh, we don't count our drunk episodes either, right? No, that just that I, mainly because I don't remember that one. <laughs> that one doesn't count. Anyway, so Shannon and I will again be at the track this weekend in Indy. Friday, first practice at three. The race Saturday afternoon, early afternoon. Come say hi. I'll try to actually hang out since it won't be like eight thousand degrees. I'm very excited at the weather forecast for this weekend. This looks looks like it's going to be a beautiful weekend. I think that's it, unless anybody has any closing remarks. Thanks for joining us, Lighting. Awesome. Um, text me yeah. back. I haven't texted you. I'm just, uh, I'm just saying for next time. Do you know it's a preemptive do you question? Know, do you know what this means? I just, I love you. Yeah, I never knew that. 
I learned that this weekend. I've, I I do that to everyone. So, Matt, Mike. Yes, this, I agree. This is good podcasting, I, also, giving each other visual hand signals. Well, for, for everyone wondering, he is using sign language right now. So, look it up. Guys, thank you for listening, and have a lovely weekend of racing. Today's podcast was presented by Podgo. Podgo is the easiest way for you to monetize your podcast, providing podcasters with a flat rate for ad space so you always know how much you get when you include an ad from Podgo. If you're a podcaster, you can apply too immediately and get connected with advertisers that fit your audience. Go to podgo.co at podgo.co and let them know that we sent you there. Hi, listeners. We wanted to take a moment to tell you about another podcast from Evergreen Podcasts and Sound Talent Media called Pit Lane Parlay. Pit Lane Parlay is the go-to podcast for IndyCar and motorsports-related news. Each episode, we discuss things like our favorite drivers, news clips from the last week, and generally giving each other a hard time about predictions we've made in the past and or life stories that have come up recently. We really have a lot of fun with it and really enjoy each other's company, and we hope you can come join us too. Join Pit Lane Parlay by following us on your favorite podcast today.